Project Control to Space Lab. We have indication of onboard malfunction. How do you read? Space Lab information, please. Oh my God. Fast, report, please. Report. Sound of control. Chuck, what's happening? What's the word you're in? There's no regular contact, you know what I mean? I've lost all systems. There's something really wrong. Space Lab, do you read me? Project Control to Space Lab. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm John. Today we are talking about Quartermass, the fourth Quartermass installment, <laughs> which was edited into a film called Quartermass Conclusion. We've normally been doing the films. This time we're actually watching the TV show because the Hammer Horror Studio went bankrupt, so they weren't around to make the fourth movie. So the fourth movie isn't really a movie it's just a uh the tv show with a lot of stuff edited out to make it fit to an hour and a half or something like that and it's supposedly really bad so we are watching <laughs> instead the unedited version the way it aired on tv in the uk in 1979 i'm going to give you a snapshot of what it was like in 1979 and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about my memories of 1979. So January 5th in the UK, lorry drivers, those are truck drivers, go on strike, causing a heating oil and fresh food shortages. January 8th, the French tanker Beetlejuice <laughs> explodes at the Gulf Ooh. oil terminal in Bantry, Ireland. 50 are killed. January 10th, Prime Minister James Callaghan returns to the UK from an international summit to widespread unrest in the UK. The Sun, famous British tabloid, reports his comments with the famous headline, crisis, question mark, what crisis? So sort of painted as out of touch with what was going on, much like the way that Jimmy Carter was being painted in the U.S. So there's about to be a big shift in both countries. January 15th, U.K. rail workers go on strike. January 22nd, tens of thousands of public employees go on strike, beginning what becomes known in the U.K. as the winter of discontent. Uh. February 1st, the grave diggers in Liverpool call off their strike, which has delayed dozens of burials. February 12th, over a thousand schools in the UK closed due to the heating oil shortage caused by the lorry driver strike. Wow. Coming over to the US, February 27th, the New Orleans police go on strike. So Mardi Gras is canceled. That same day, Soviet oil tanker I think it's pronounced Antonio Gramsci, suffered a minor shipwreck, leaving the shore in Ventspils. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it either. Again, don't write to us correcting our pronunciation. Anyway, this resulted in a 5,000-ton oil spill, the largest that had ever occurred in the Baltic Sea. So we got a lot of oil spills and problems like that going on. March 1st, the Scottish 
devolution referendum. Scotland voted by a majority of 77,437 for Scottish Assembly, but it wasn't implemented due to a condition that at least 40% of the electorate must support the proposal, which it failed to reach. Also, the Welsh voted against devolution. National health service workers in the West Midlands, also on March 1st, threatened to go on strike in their bid to win a 9% pay raise. So a lot of strikes. March 22nd, Sir Richard Sykes, the ambassador to the Netherlands, this is the UK ambassador. The, I'm covering mostly UK history here. Shot dead by a provisional Irish Republican army member in The Hague. So it's a bad year for ambassadors too. We'll get to that. <laughs> March 30th, uh, World War II veteran, and conservative Northern Ireland spokesman, Irie Neve, killed by an Irish National Liberation Army bomb in the House of Commons car park. April 1st, statistics show that the economy in the UK shrank by 0.8% in the first quarter of the year, largely due to the winter of discontent, sparking fears Britain could soon be faced with its second recession in four years. April 2nd, in Sverdlovsk, a Soviet bio-warfare laboratory, accidentally releases anthrax spores, killing 66 people and an unknown number of livestock. April 4th, Josephine Whitaker, a 19-year-old bank worker, is murdered in Halifax. Police believe that she is the 11th woman to be murdered by the Yorkshire Ripper. April 23rd, the anti-Nazi League protester Blair Peach is fatally injured after being struck on the head, probably by a member of the Metropolitan Police's special patrol group. That's the SPG. Those are the cops that actually carry guns in, in the UK. Mm. May 4th, the Conservatives win the general election by a 44-seat majority. Margaret Thatcher becomes the first female prime minister of the United Kingdom. Uh-oh. And Liberal Party leader Jeremy Thorpe loses his seat in the election. Four days later, May 8th, Jeremy Thorpe goes on trial at the Old Bailey charged with attempted murder. June 3rd, a blowout in the Gulf of Mexico causes 600,000 tons of oil to be spilled in the water. The worst oil spill to date. Some estimate the spill to be 428 million gallons, making it the largest unintentional oil spill until Deepwater Horizon in 2010. <laughs> so, okay, have you seen how many oil tankers, how much oil has been lost, plus the heating oil shortage due to the lorry drivers? Are you getting a sense of what some of the things going on here? From August 10th to October 23rd, the entire ITV network in the UK is shut down by a technician's strike. We will get to that, I'm sure, when we talk about the production notes. August 14th, disgraced ex-MP John Stonehouse is released from jail after serving four years of his seven-year sentence for faking his own death. August 27th, Lord Mountbatten of Burma and two 15-year-olds, his nephew and a boat boy, 
are assassinated by the provisional Irish Republican army bombing while on holiday in the Republic of Ireland. Warren Point ambush was on August 27th. Also, 18 British soldiers killed in Northern Ireland by IRA bombs. September 2nd, police discover a woman's body in an alleyway near Bradford City Center. The woman, 20-year-old student Barbara Leach, is believed to be the 12th victim of the Yorkshire Ripper. September 10th, British Leyland announces that production of MG cars will finish in the autumn of next year. And this is not the only British car manufacturer that ends up shutting down plants this year. So there's manufacturing is shutting down. People are going on strike. Bunch of environmental crises, mostly due to like uh, oil spills. And this is from my memories. If that wasn't enough, inflation was out of control in the UK and the US. In fact, it's one of the biggest spikes in inflation in U.S. history, uh, 79 to 80. Then on top of that, there was an energy crisis with long lines at the gas pumps. I remember sitting in the back seat of the car for an hour waiting to get gas. There was huge tensions in the Middle East, which were bubbling up before this point. They would explode after quartermass premieres. But the fact that they were like, reaching the boiling point before this came out, no doubt had some influence on it. Some of the huge tensions in the Middle East, the Israel-Palestine conflict, perennial conflict, but it was particularly notable that year. Afghanistan, where the U.S. ambassador was executed. So another ambassador executed is not a good year for ambassadors. And the Soviet Union invaded. So the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, which put them at odds with the U.S., who was backing the other side. And it looked like the two superpowers might actually come into a hot war, had been in a Cold War for a long time. Two superpowers, two nuclear superpowers. So basically, World War III. Essentially, the events that they made Argo based out of, like, that was in 78, right? 79. 79. So there we go. So... That was the third place I was going to mention is Iran. There was a, the Shah fled, the leader that had been friendly toward the West. And there was an Islamic fundamentalist revolution. And that was going on throughout the year. The actual hostage crisis, which was dramatized in Argo, doesn't start until after quartermass premieres but is ongoing during this run of quartermass. So Islamic fundamentalists, mostly students, storm the embassy, take 90 hostages. This is the U.S. embassy in Tehran, the capital of Iran. So you've got a global energy crisis, a global financial crisis, World War III looming. You asked me, off, off camera, if I thought that there were maybe some apocalyptic things going on in 1979, yes, there were, because I remember the time. <laughs> October 24th is when Quartermass premiered on ITV television in the UK, like one of the first things to air after the strike. So tell us a little bit about the background to the production of this show. 
Well, I'm going to have to go back a little further than 1978 or 79 because um, they wanted to make the fourth one pretty much like after Quartermass in the Pit, but it never got past the developmental stage. And in that time, uh, the writer, uh, Nigel Neal, did end up going back to BBC. Like he left BBC to start writing for the Hammer films and everything like that. But then after Quartermass in the Pit and then talks falling through, he just went back to writing for the BBC. And then in 1972, the BBC commissioned him to write the serial for the fourth quarter mass. He would say he was influenced by the political events like power cuts, uh, oil crises, um, the turmoil in Belfast, developments in the space race. Uh, we'll see how these themes come into play in this, in this miniseries. I mean, should I call it a miniseries, a serial? Like, what's the... Um... So miniseries is the US name for something like this. They call it a serial in the UK. Okay, okay. They actually began filming in 1973. They actually started with the special effects sequences, particularly like all the uh, the outer space stuff. But the BBC started getting cold feet because the budget was a lot larger than they were expecting. They halted filming and they just wrote out the option that they had on it until it ran out in 1975. In that time, uh, Nigel Neal actually stopped writing for BBC and went over to write for ITV. In May of 1977, uh, Houston Films, which was a subsidiary of Times Television, uh, would pick up unmade scripts for Quartermass and make it into a four-part serial for ITV. And the intention, like you mentioned, was they were going to cut all four parts into a 100-minute feature for U.S. and the rest of Europe, but apparently there was not a huge demand for it, so like the release that it got in North America and the rest of Europe was pretty minimal to say the least. And even even Nigel Neal was on record of saying that it was something that he really wasn't in favor of doing. I have no recollection of this film at all. <laughs> and I was a sci-fi geek already at that time. I don't even think there's like anything on Amazon for it right now, is there? I don't know. It's really hard to find. It's pretty interesting because Quatermass, all three actors are Oscar nominees, two of which are Oscar winners. Don Levy was nominated for, uh, I haven't seen it, but I, is, am I pronouncing this right? Bo Guest? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, he was nominated in 39. I think that might have been his only nomination, but yes. Okay. Uh, the serial was supposed to air in September of 1979. But uh, the strike that began at ITV on August 3rd uh, escalated into a full-scale television blackout that started on August 10th. So that obviously pushed back the uh, premiere date, especially since it lasted 75 days. And when it did finally premiere, uh, sadly, ratings were only averaging 11 million viewers over the four-week run, which were significantly well below expectations as the series failed to crowd the top 20 programs in the weeks it was broadcast. And honestly, like science fiction in the movies had been recalibrated at this point because Star Wars came out in 77. So what people wanted to see when they went to a science fiction movie had changed to a special effects driven. This is not that. No, it clearly isn't. This opens with Quartermass in retirement. 
probably a little bit closer to what Nigel Neal expected Bernard Quartermass to be like, Sir John Mills. And uh, he comes to London searching for his granddaughter, Hetty. And London is in ruins. There is gang warfare, stuff is in rubble, riot police, trash everywhere. And we find out that this is not just London. This is the way it is all over the world. He is a guest on a TV show called Hands in Space, which is uh, broadcasting uh, this joint U.S.-Russian space mission. So here's where we get some science fiction, because this happens before there actually is such a thing. There, In this, there's a joint U.S.-Russian space station before the International Space Station, I think. And in fact, a space shuttle, we find out, uh, before there was actually the real space shuttle. Well, as they're broadcasting this live transmission, the spacecraft are destroyed by some mystery force. After they leave the studio, after the giant space no, mishap, we drive through London again in the daytime, seeing more of this dystopia and everything. Yeah. So anyway, they go to uh, this guy, this astronomer, Joe Capp's place in the countryside. I don't know if it's England or Scotland, probably England, because it they feels like it's not too far from London. Right. And uh, actually, it can't be too far. Well, I guess it could, but it's probably not because there, there's this roving group of hippie types that call themselves the planet people. They come by the observatory where Cap is living because there's a Neolithic site nearby, Ringstone Round. Technically, it's on the Cap's property. I'm not sure. The whole reason they went there was because they've got these telescopes and Cap thinks he detected this powerful energy burst at the time that the uh, spaceships were destroyed. But this other development happens where these very hostile like almost Manson family-esque hippie types are like gathering at this ringstone round, you know, megalith formation, whatever you want to call it. This guy, Joe, like he goes off on a rant about how much he hates them for how, you know, they're not scientific. They they fly in the face of facts. And then when he gets out and Quatermass tries to talk to them, because I mean, he's still showing off pictures of his granddaughter trying to find her. They're about to like start throwing the rocks because, oh, you're the scientist. Oh, what kind of science? Oh, you study the, the planetary science. That's the worst kind. Yeah, he, he says uh, rockets tear holes in the skin of the world. <laughs> yeah. And all the while they're doing this, they have the letter P written on both cheeks. And there are times I couldn't hold back my immaturity. I literally wrote my notes there with a pee cult. Yeah. Well, that is, it is planet people. Yes. I came across this quote yesterday, a Carl Sagan quote, which was probably from around this time. I'm not sure when he said it. He said, we've arranged a society based on science and technology in which nobody understands anything about science and technology. (laughs) And this combustible mixture of ignorance and power sooner or later is going to blow up in our faces. Who is running the science and technology in a democracy if people don't know anything about it? 
science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking, a way of skeptically interrogating the universe with a fine understanding of human fallibility. If we're not able to ask skeptical questions, to interrogate those who tell us that something is true, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we're up for grabs for the next charlatan, political or religious, who comes ambling along. So we're watching this in the time where like, anti-vaxxers and flat earthers have gone mainstream like that 20 years ago that would have been laughable like only the fringiest of the fringe left-wingers believed in like anti-vaxxing and now like left and right um and right, that fringe like has our spectrums on both sides yeah the problems of our past have now become our problems of the present serious huge number of people believe that the earth is flat people haven't believed that in these kind of numbers since like the 1500s dark ages you know? yes like <laughs> there's a reason we call them the dark ages and it wasn't because they didn't have electricity so i'm a little scared for the future because this was like the dystopian future in 1979 and we're like living in that dystopian future now yeah, yeah, this really resonates in that way. So this episode ends with a blinding flash of light and all of the planet people at Ringstone Round disappear, which mm -hmm. I thought, you know, that's actually kind of a good thing, maybe. You know? Right? <laughs> so yeah, the light, light came down. But yeah, and that, that was basically the end of the episode. Yeah, it was, it was a good episode. Uh, let's move on to the second chapter, which is known as the Lovely Lightning. It opens with their leader, Kick Along, the planet people's, the PP pee -pee people's leader. I had him written in my notes as Sad Max. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. Sad Max believes that the planet people at Ringstone Round, the ones that disappeared, were transported to the planet, wherever that is. Yeah, and I I feel like I missed it. Like he somehow ended up in the tr like one of the police vans between the end of the first episode and the beginning of this second one. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what happened there either. Yeah, but he was not with them when this group was zapped. He's still on Earth. They find one survivor named Isabel, who calls it the Lovely Lightning from which this episode gets its name, they decide to take Isabel to London to test, you know, why she wasn't affected. All this time she's chanting the word lay over and over again. They get caught in the crossfire between two fighting gangs. Quartermass gets pulled out of the car, but Annie and Isabel escape. And then at the radio telescope on Cap's property the planet people show up and they congregate at the stone circle cap is not present at the time but he sees a beam of light strike where his home is yeah. and so he runs home finds it damaged family gone and that's how this episode ends a couple of things about this i noticed when annie showed up for the first time there was a boom in shot which I almost <laughs> never notice on a pro professional production, but usually it's independent films where I, I I'm like, Oh, there's boom and shot, you know, but this one, there's definite boom and shot in a couple of places. And it, it's, it was really, it was not just a tiny bit. It was in there. 
Another thing that I noticed, it wasn't that long ago that I watched ARG Music War, which I love. Early punk and new wave is my thing. A very young Toya Wilcox, uh, who was in ARG Music War and was a, is a pretty well-known late punk, early new wave performer in the UK, you might remember her because she went viral. Her YouTube video went viral during the pandemic when she and her husband, Robert Fripp, were stuck inside and they covered Enter Sandman and she was on the Stairmaster while she was doing it. If you haven't seen it, it's a hoot. A stairway to heaven cover opportunity missed right there. Oh, they do a lot of covers. They released this <laughs> whole tea time with Toya and... Robert or something like that. They did, they released a whole bunch of different cover songs, but Toya is known for her um, attractive figure. And she was obviously going to be good looking from a young age. She's still like very young at the time quarter mass came out. Anyway, she played Sal. I noticed in this. Now we are up to chapter three. What lies beneath? Yeah, it's weird to see Harrison Ford, Michelle Pfeiffer in this. Stop it. <laughs> so he's in a junkyard and he hears singing. He's, I guess, attacked, if I recall. Yeah, he's, ch he's chased out. It was like, it's like a funeral that he gets chased away from. So into this junkyard and he's rescued by a clan of old people who take him to their secret old people underground lair and supposedly to help contribute to the society, they take his watch to give to a soft gang. And I guess what a soft gang is, is a gang that doesn't terrorize them too much as long as they pay a tribute. And then in addition, like brings them food and stuff. So this soft gang to pay them off, they use Quatermass's watch. Is everyone crazy here? I have no idea. That was what I had in my notes. They seem like, <laughs> I don't know if they're crazy or if they're just, oh, well, that's old people are all kind of crazy. I'm not sure. Everyone's crazy in the dystopia. Quatermass learns that there's a scientist that lives with them, Mr. Chisholm. And he goes to Mr. Chisholm to learn stuff. And it turns out Mr. Chisholm was a scientist, but he was like, he worked on soaps, yeah. you know, scent and soaps. You know, I grew up in a city in the Midwest of the United States, what was known for its soap manufacturing. So there were a lot of like these scientists, but they were just in corporate employee making stuff. Yeah. Like soap. Yeah. Meanwhile, Isabel, she's in this hospital slash laboratory where they're observing her. And she starts levitating off the bed mm -hmm. exorcist style and then like levitates pretty high up near, near the ceiling yeah like near, not quite so it's hard it, to tell it, if it's near the ceiling or not but yeah. it's near the top of the frame you know right. so she's like at least six feet up or something in the air and then she explodes <laughs> into dust um, feet above the covers yeah yeah very <laughs> ghostbusters -y. Yeah. so there's that one thing that i had with this Quatermass in general is that the events and in particular, the dialogue seemed like a whole lot of scenes strung together. Like there's a story here, but it doesn't flow. No. 
it's like little choppy bits here and there. It's like, okay, and then this happens, and then this happens, and this happens, and it all mm-hmm. forms a story. But unlike previous Quatermass, where there's like one through line, this is not that way. Yeah, it's funny because like Nigel Neal was very against trying to condense this into a hundred minute movie. And there's me like over here by episode three going, you know what? This could have probably made a very coherent 100 minute movie. While he's talking to Chisholm, we get another sort of environmental lesson like slipped in here. Nothing's really said about it, but Chisholm tells Quatermass how for these scents that they would kill the animals just to get their musk glands. So he's like, well, you used the rest of the animal, right? And he's like, no, we just killed them and took the musk glands. It's not huge like a lot of the other messages in these things, but there's a bit of an environmental message, it seems like, coming through there. Oh, there's 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 definitely a lot of messages. So soldiers attack this underground junkyard old people compound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're looking for Quatermass. Meanwhile, Cap is alone in his observatory and like he's devastated and in despair, but he keeps having visions and hearing the voices of his family, in particular, his daughter. Mm -hmm. And it's never really clear if this is in his mind or if he's actually hearing them because it's sort of done from his point of view. Quatermass is taken to BTV, which is making music videos. They come in they take over the station to put on a talk show. <laughs> and um, here we have Quatermass jumping to his trademark conclusion. He goes straight to a third of these disappearances happened at Megalis. Ergo, humans put them as beacons to something deep underground for next time. And that time is now. And he also believes that there's a giant film slash skin slash membrane slash bubble around the earth, enclosing the earth, so diffuse it can't be detected, but can concentrate its energy to disappear people. I love how in all these Quatermass things, he has like fact A, B, and C, and he jumps to conclusion Q, you know? (laughs) Literally. Yes. (laughs) We've talked about that in every single one of them. So he's on this talk show with a Russian, Pavel Grigorich Gurov, who's kind of like the Russian Quatermass. And there's some hilarious dialogue between the two of them. I keep thinking in these things that these scenes are not really fleshed out. They're just improving crap. And this is one <laughs> of those times where I really thought so. Gurov, like I said, is like the Russian Quatermass. So he jumps to conclusions too. And they just sort of jump from conclusion to conclusion. <laughs> but ultimately, Gurov wants to try to communicate with this intelligence. And Quatermass says, uh, you can't. The human race is being harvested. Again, another Quatermass conclusion, like he goes from like these lightning things to like, oh, they're harvesting humans for something, you know, probably to use as batteries in the Matrix. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This is where they send the shuttle up, the Motherbird shuttle. So first they discuss it and it's a literal smoke filled room. Oh, yeah. 
you know, the megalith thing keeps going back and forth between it being a beacon that was deliberately set up or that it was set up by like ancient aliens or that it was set up by humans to communicate. It's never clear. Or as a warning sign to stay away from that area. It's never really clear, but they're like, I don't know. It just, I, it's yeah. never really clear what they think. And this is yeah. another time where I think they're just making it up as they go along. They're like improvising <laughs> the dialogue. That's what it seems like to me. Now, I know Nigel Neal's too much of a control freak. Absolutely. Yeah. So he probably wrote all this out, but it's the megaliths attempt to appease the thing that's underneath the ground, which I'm getting very, if this sounds like the Tommy knockers to you, it's because Stephen King was hugely influenced by this. Yes. Okay. So he thinks these traditional gathering spots are harvesting sites. And a younger guy says that, He's close enough in age that he's young enough to grasp what the kids feel about this planet. <laughs> oh, yeah. That. That, that pretty much goes nowhere. Um, meanwhile, they plan to fly a space shuttle to communicate via radio. Like why they can't communicate via radio from the ground, I don't know. But they're going to fly a space shuttle up to the edge and like try to communicate. Motherbird. This is the point. It seems like everyone is doing improv. One woman hears them refer to the shuttle as Motherbird, and she says, "Of course, a mother bird draws the attention away from the chicks." And I'm like, "What? What? What the hell is supposed to be some huge decoy? Like, oh well, we won't harvest from Earth anymore now that there's this mothership." Yeah, it's like it, it didn't stave off any other beams coming down. The shuttle crew sees this giant laser pointing at earth then it gets zapped out of existence by the laser at this point i gotta bring up something about the two space sequences because in the second one like we've established that it's a beam that's coming to earth just wipes everything out or just wipes out what's in you know essentially the beacon's path or in this case the shuttle and we don't see what happened to the shuttle or like we don't see any trace of the shuttle after that Yet in the first one, we get a pretty elaborate sequence of these two joining satellites, like getting ripped apart and like just like crumble. Like there, there's a scene where like one of like one of the like the cylindrical shuttle looks like it's being impacted from an invisible force on the outside. We have astronauts crawling out of the shuttle. Third one, it's just a beam just comes out and just wipes it out. It's it's. Yeah, it's supposedly the same like alien intelligence that caused both of them, but I don't know. They're not a very consistent race of alien intelligence. <laughs> I have no clue. I have no clue. <laughs> like it could be that the first one collided with the membrane and that happened, but that's not really possible because we've sent stuff to the to the moon and stuff like that. Or were they out past the moon? I don't know. It, they, they don't really address it. Like after it happens. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of stuff in this that I feel like they're making it up as they go along. And that's one of the things. Back at the observatory, Cap is continuing to go crazy. And I have in my notes that the hippies sing bad hippie folk to convert a young soldier into a planet person. Mm -hmm. Also, the gang warfare continues between two gangs i think the batters and the killers i wasn't really sure what their names <laughs> yeah. were but that's what i kind of took from graffiti yeah that's where i just wrote down back to children and men the early years 
so the planet people start walking in between these warring gangs. And at first the gangs stop shooting at each other, start shooting the planet people. And then soon they both gangs drop their weapons and join the planet people hippie cult. They're all going to Wembley Stadium. Yes. Which is huge. Like if you guys have ever seen the famous Freddie Mercury concert where he's got, you know, getting the whole crowd to sing along that's wembley stadium right and 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 in this story they've established from part one wembley stadium has now become like a, a gladiatorial arena that which we never get to see but like that they just they mention that briefly as they drive by and i'm like oh, oh wow that's that's kind of a neat little landmark but now it's like oh now people are instinctively drawn to it as another beacon so yeah, it's like sacred turf or something. Up to 100,000 of them are gathering there. The army sent in and the young official turns them against Quatermass. So Quatermass and his crew, they try to flee, but they wreck their Range Rover. Mm-hmm. Annie is killed. Oh, I got to bring something up about this real quick. Yeah, go ahead. She dies with her eyes open. And that is a huge R rating moment in England. <laughs> Cause like you can die in the same manner in two movies, but if you die with your eyes closed, it's PG 13. If you die with your eyes open, it's like an immediate R. So for that to happen on like a, a British television program, like that, that was their X and experiment moments, I think. So like it's a bridge too far. If you die with your eyes open. Yes. It's like, oh, this is a little too realistic here. I was, I was like, and this is 1979, and this happened on a British television channel. That's um, that's that's their X and experiment moment. Quatermass, after the Range Rover is wrecked, and he tries to flee on foot, but is consumed by the bolt of white light. Mm-hmm. And that is the end of this episode. The next chapter, chapter four, is known as an endangered species. So it turns out Quatermass survived that lightning strike, that white bolt, but all of the people in the stadium were reduced to ash. I noticed that the opening credits to this one were gray, like every other one was colored. It had like an orange, yeah. Yeah, the previous ones were like orangish, and this one, the opening credits were gray. So I noticed that was a difference. There's graffiti all over the stadium, including swastikas. And we see that the sun itself in this has turned green. And I, and I couldn't help but point out just how funny it was hearing a British guy look up and go, here comes the sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Famous hippie song. Yet. Anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like that was that was clearly intentional. Again, I don't know if they were making this up on the spot. They said something about like. He believed that like some part of the people that had been zapped is in the atmosphere and that's why the sun's green now. Yeah. They specifically say it's green like vomit. Yeah, like vomit, which I've never vomited green, but, you know, whatever. No. (laughs) But, you know, ever since the pea soup in The Exorcist, we can consider that (laughs) vomiting green is just a standard trope. Of course. Gaurav makes a statement that the U.S. and the USSR are no longer communicating with each other. Quatermass thinks that all of this is the work of a machine, a probe. Just like we sent probes to other planets to collect soil samples, this must must have been 
programmed to collect living human protein. I don't know where he comes up with this. It's another crater mass moment, right? It's like, okay, uh, yeah, it's a probe collecting human protein uh, a machine, you know, doing it. Sure. There's no evidence that this is a machine, but it's a machine and it's collecting human protein. That's what it's after. Yeah. Karparkov, a military hawk in the Soviet Union, wants to destroy it with missiles. Quatermass thinks that could work if they can find out where it will strike next. You know, they can aim the missiles at it. So Gurov and Quatermass, they want to get a team together. A, a team of the elderly, though, too. The older, the better. Yes. <laughs> he recruits Jack, you know, the soap scientist. So I don't think the uh, the general or whatever, Barkov, bothers to wait for them. He sends up some missiles. That doesn't really work. Yeah. The Russian scientist Gurov has this quote where he said, where he's trying to like mentally figure this out. And he says, it attack in place marked from ancient time, but also only when big number of crowd is there. It must detect crowd like heat seeking missile. The smell of humans from dancing, fighting, etc. The old geezer lab is set up <laughs> I'm like, what is being harvested? Flavor? Like there's some, there's like a suggestion that they're harvesting the humans for their musk <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. Like that this is like a, um, it's just a quality of life thing. It's not even needed for sustenance for the species. They're like, oh, humans taste good or humans add that wonderful human flavoring. Yeah. Why do writers think that we all taste good? <laughs> so a scientist collapses but we find out that they've discovered, quote, the electric image of a cell. Now mm-hmm. we can begin. Like the electric image of a cell. Yep. I, wasn't that all well mapped out by like electron microscopes by this point? But anyway. Right. Quatermass returns to the observatory and he finds Joe who claims his family is still alive and he wants to go to them or he wants them to go. He claims they're all alive and he's going to go find them. Quatermass and them are like, okay, he's grief stricken. They leave. But after they leave, he continues to talk and hear the voices of his wife and daughter. Meanwhile, they're trying to synthesize pheromones. Jack says he remembers the body odor of the first woman he ever laid with. And they're they're like, okay, this is a thing. They're so like, we're going to, there's a combination between the sounds the smell or whatever aggregated humans that they're going to try to synthesize to lay a trap the planet people attack the observatory again and this time they destroy everything yep the leader of the planet people claims that science and learning leads to quote spilling yeah knowing things is a sin in his words Well, spilling apparently is being rejected by the force that takes them, causing the green atmosphere. And I guess what he's saying is if you're too scientific, you're too rational and you're not emotional enough. And emotional is what creates the hormones and the pheromones and all that. And that's what they can smell. And he doesn't know this, but apparently that's a good thing because you're going to get taken. But we think it's a bad thing because we're more scientifically minded. Anyway, <laughs> belief is important. So when he tells them that he's a Jew, they're like, oh, that's a start. Yeah. So apparently knowledge is sin. You have to unlearn. 
And he actually tries for a moment and he eventually is like, no, I can't do this. And so they destroy his lab and leave him and head toward the sun. One of them says she's going to stay behind with him. And the leader just turns and shoots her. This guy like pulled out a submachine gun in episode two. He's mowed down quite a few people. When Quatermass returns, again, Joe admits that his family's dead. We find out that the Russian missiles are floating aimlessly as they malfunctioned. Quatermass thinks that the observatory is an old location, part of this, you know, ringstone round area. Right. And he's going to use it to try to create a trap by using the sound and the pheromones and everything to simulate a big crowd of young people to get it to strike here. And when it's focused on this point, he's going to shoot back up the laser. He needs like 35 kilotons of thermonuclear blast focused upwards. (laughs) He says, if this won't do it, nothing will. So I don't know how he arrived at 35 kilotons, but 35 kilotons of thermonuclear blast. I don't know how they're going to aim that straight up. And I don't know why they can't do that from any spot, but they have Mm -hmm. to do it from the spot that the laser is targeting. But okay, so they're going to do that. Because sure. And they literally have a big red button to do this with, you know, so it's like <laughs> literally pressing the button. Yeah, at least they don't have like the, uh, was it the red countdown timer? So they say this is foolproof. Of course it is. Joe learns that he can make his family exist by thinking, but he says, I know what evil is. That's evil. And Quatermass says, perhaps evil is always something else's good. So what's evil to us is good to someone else. So it's very, um, it's very uh, Hellraiser-ish. Perhaps it's a cosmic law, Quatermass says. And Joe just says, Satan, the enemy. So again, sounds like they're improvising dialogue on the spot. And we already had like a moment where Quatermass has had like a, like this whole science versus religious notion back in like, was it uh, Quatermass 2? Where there yep. was like the the guy that um, you know the church thought was possessed by a demon was like no he's hearing a signal or he's affected by the signal. Well, that was in Quatermass in the Pit. Like that, there was okay, like, yeah, yeah. A running theme in Nigel Neal's stuff is this like ancient evil and you know how it's connected to science and all that. In order to do this trap, they start broadcasting the sounds and I guess releasing the pheromones and all that stuff. But while they're doing this, the planet people cult shows up. Mm-hmm. Joe is shot by the leader. So Joe's gone. So Annie's been killed. Joe's been killed. Everybody's getting killed here. And then Quatermass sees his granddaughter, Hetty, with the planet people cult. And this is too much of a shock. He suffers like a heart attack. And the light strikes but he collapses while reaching for the button. His granddaughter, Hetty, helps him though, and together they reach and they blow the nuke together. Why she's like, had this change of heart or why, who knows? So I can only assume that there's a nuclear blast. They never show a mushroom cloud or anything, but I can only assume that Quatermass dies at this point. We don't know for sure, but it's strongly implied that he's dead. The ending is not done by Quatermass, but it shows some kids playing in a nice green field. Mm -hmm. 
it's narrated by the Russian Gurov. And he yeah. says, quote, the message was taken. It has not come again. We pray it will never come again. Mm-hmm. I have watched the sky and the land become clean. Here as the old world, the countryside has beauty once more. Little children can play in its fields and sing their innocent songs again. And then the kids start singing their innocent song, which is the Huffity Puffity Ringstone yeah. Round song. Yeah. So is while it all starting all while over we're again? rocks in the background too. Is it all cycling back around? I don't yeah. know. But okay. <laughs> so that's that's the end of that. So <sighs> all right. Reaction, uh, thoughts? Much to my surprise, as much as I said, like the music made me feel like I was watching like I was expecting Cannibal Holocaust to break out. The music when the granddaughter goes back to Quatermass, I thought that music perfectly fit the scene. Like it was a wonderfully written piece of music just for that scene. That said, that was one messy ending because we had seen cultist Sad Max throughout this entire series just like shooting innocent people gunning them down like just being being like the human you know and antagonist human paraquat yeah like he's just he's somebody that you want to see get their comeuppance like narratively the writer should know that if we dislike a character in a film and we're supposed to have like a resolution that character who we have disliked for so long has to have a sense of a comeuppance. And yet he has killed Joe. He has gunned down this innocent person who said, I just, I want to stay with Joe and try to help him. So he just, she turns her back and he shoots her. He's, we needed something more than, oh, he was part of this blast. It's like, we needed something that just, at least I wanted something to watch Sad Max get gunned down there, like or something before the beam takes everybody else. Okay, fair enough. I wasn't, I didn't really care as much as you did, but okay. My main complaint about this whole series is that I liked it barely. To me, it's somewhere in the C range. Like it gets a barely. That's that's fair. Yeah. yeah. But it reminds me of some of the worst excesses of Doctor Who. Mm. And this is all written by Nigel Neal. So I don't know what his excuse is. Right. There were episodes of Doctor Who where it's like clearly a story arc where multiple writing teams came in at different times and they don't integrate quite as well with what was going on before. (laughs) And so a Doctor Who storyline might last two or three episodes, but those three episodes might not together all that well and that's the way i felt that's the way i actually i feel about nigel neal's writing in general going all the way back to the beginning is that he has a lot of good ideas Mm -hmm. but sometimes it feels like a lot of things at the wall at the same time and seeing what'll stick you know it's like okay there's this environmental message but also there's this message you know over here about it's the batman v superman approach we'll just film whatever storyline hits the target that we hit with our story generating shotgun yeah so like technology is good technology is bad you know uh it's it's it there's a lot of total inconsistencies in this one 
yeah, there's a scientific explanation for everything. There's not a scientific explanation for everything. It's an ancient evil. No, it's an alien race. No, it's, you know... Um, it's an antenna array. The aliens built the megaliths. No, the humans built the megaliths because the aliens wanted them to build megaliths. No, the humans built the megaliths. And you're never quite sure what's right or what's real. Because that's the thing with good science fiction is good science fiction has a concept that it's rooted in like whether it be time travel whether it be genetics whether it be any kind of advancement in in technology or any hypothesis of technology and it plays off the themes of it it plays off of the what if that's what good science fiction does and not to say that neil isn't a good science fiction writer it's just like you said it's all over the place and by not having that consistency of tone, it just it just kind of lets down the, the series. Well, I wouldn't even just say good science fiction or good science fiction writing. I'd say just good writing in general. Good writing in general, yeah. I'll give you an example. Isabel, she levitates and explodes. She's the only one in the whole world that levitates and explodes. <laughs> right. Why, we don't know. It's like... Is it because like she got, she survived being zapped and they're like, oh, wait a minute. There's that morsel over there in a hospital, nowhere near where we zapped everybody else that survived. Mm -hmm. Let's go back and like get that last breadcrumb and zap yeah. her too. Or is it because she was at the outer rim and delayed effects? Like, she, yeah. you know, kind of like radiation, like she's sick from it, but she hasn't died from it yet. Or is it that she's like, She's like, oh, uh, I have these powers. I'm just going to go to them on my own. So I'm going to mm -hmm. levitate and just go like dust myself, you know, like a suicide. You yeah. know, what is it? And, and it's like the two uh, the two space incidents where it's like the one is kind of drawn out and a lot more graphic. And the other one is the beam of light. Because I feel like what happened with the first part like I said, they, they began filming. I honestly think they took the filming from the 1973 and just brought that in. So it's like, oh, well, we still have this. So let's let's use it. I mean, at least, I mean, hypothetically, like once I read that, I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Why the two space sequences didn't match the tone. And and one other thing, like Neil. When I, when I was doing the research on the production notes, Neil and Neil was talking about how he felt that he didn't want to, you know, w when he went to the writing of this and they said, hey, well, hey, we're going to do a hundred minute condensed version for the theaters. He said, well, I don't want to write something that feels like padding. And holy crap, dude, <laughs> when you scenes that you need to draw out that should have been drawn out that should have you know been given more attention and there's other scenes that didn't need so much attention that because it had a runtime got dragged out so much longer than it needed to yeah um and then the uh, medical science with hormones they use hormones and pheromones interchangeably and then there's like we have electronically mapped the cell which you know I thought that was like well-established science for a hundred years at this point. Yeah. Well, what's the big deal about the cell? Like, like they, they, they present this thing, like this guy collapses on the ground and. Why does he collapse? Right. Like I had a blank as to who was the person that collapsed. I'm like, Oh no, 
Was it our Musk scientist? Did he collapse? Oh, wait, no, we see him in later scenes. So who is this guy that collapsed? What's the big deal about the cell? What kind of cell is it? Why is this a big deal? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff here that just doesn't feel... Now, apparently, Nigel Neal wrote a novel based on all this. So maybe the novel makes more sense than the screenplay, but I don't know. I just had this crazy thought. Neal's work on... Quatermass, I think could be well adapted in the modern times, and I think is actually waiting for a more seasoned writer that understands the weaknesses of Neil to bring that out. Well, maybe we'll talk about that on a future episode of Geek Channel 8. But for now, I want to say, if you like hearing us talk about these movies, and have your own opinions about them, please write and let us know. GC8 podcast, that's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. Tell somebody else about it, something else you could do. Just one other person, when they're looking for a good podcast, mention ours. It would help us out a lot. Until next time, this is Eric. And this is John. Signing off. Oh, I like your. Oh, I went. Yep, they're doomed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>